Uh, What's wrong with the world today? Uh, Ask that question a hundred times on the streets of Ashfield and you'd probably get 150 answers. Fix the housing crisis. uh, Get tough on terror. There are too many immigrants. There are not enough immigrants. We need more jobs. We need more welfare. We need higher taxes. We need lower taxes. Get the environment right. Fix the hospitals. We need more religion. We need less religion or meditation or physical fitness or better eating habits. Globalisation, consumerism, fossil fuels. All sorts of answers from all sorts of assumptions and philosophies. But here in Romans 1 and 2, God spells out what the problem of the world is. And it's far more fundamental than our behaviour, how we treat each other or how we treat the world. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Godlessness and wickedness, that's what's wrong with the world. Uh, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against them. And as we read on through that, those verses of Romans chapter 1, we find out what those two ideas mean. Godlessness is about an attitude that wants a world without God, wants to suppress any truth to do with God, to pretend he doesn't exist. See there in verse 19, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. That's what godlessness is. God is there to be found. His fingers are all over his world. But godlessness is consciously choosing to ignore him, uh, to remake the world according to ourselves. That's godlessness. It's an attitude. And then there's wickedness, verse 18 says. And wickedness flows from godlessness. It's the actions that result from the attitude. Uh, wickedness is uh, more, perhaps more literally translated unrighteousness. Behaviour, that's the opposite of righteousness. And verses 29 to 32 gives us a long list of examples of wickedness, of unrighteousness. Uh, and when by attitude and action we remove God, we replace him and, and we choose to worship something else. Because human beings are designed to worship. We all worship something. Verse 22, we read, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged. They swapped what was real for what was not real. Uh, In those days it may have been statues set up in shrines and temples, perhaps less likely to happen today, Uh, but today we still have just as many idols, Australian idols, maybe even more, musicians, singers and sportsmen, but also houses and success and wealth, fashion, clothes, jewellery, equipment, cars, boats, 
And then, then you've got the idols of ideology. You've got power and pleasure and approval and leisure. Images made to look like mortal things. People give them glory and honour and attention and energy even though they're fading and rusting and unsatisfying and insignificant and they replace those things rather than worship, give glory to the one who actually deserves it. That's the behaviour verse 18 says God's wrath is being revealed against. Wrath. We think of the word wrath and almost always our our mind goes to the way humans display wrath and it becomes a negative word. Uh, We see self-interested vengeance when we think of the word wrath. We see out of control retaliation. But that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is his righteous justice. It's measured It's completely consistent. It's no random display of bad temper. His justice flows from his personal character, his righteousness, his quality of always doing right and always being right and always acting in a way that's consistent with his character. That's where wrath comes from. He's wrathful because his world has been corrupted. He's wrathful because he's righteous. And it's his world and his people who are suffering because of that uh, unrighteousness. And his judgement, his wrath, is about setting those things to right. And in chapter 1 we see one way that God's wrath is displayed. Chapter 1 is about God's wrath being displayed now in this life. How's God's wrath displayed in this life against godlessness? Well, people receive what they want. That's a display of God's wrath. God gives them what they choose. Verse 24, uh, there's the the first appearing of a phrase that's repeated a number of times. God hands people over. He allows them what they want. They want godlessness, that's what they receive. They bear the consequences of their choices and their attitudes. See verse 24? Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies one for another. Or verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Or verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The logic is because they're godless in their attitudes, God hands them over to wickedness in action. Their attitudes are allowed to result in the actions that they desire. It's God handing them over. They want to worship created things rather than God and so God's wrath is shown in this life in allowing them. He loosens the chains He gives them free reign. The thoughts and the desires lead to their actions. They desire pleasure and self-satisfaction and greed and that leads to actions that are corrupt and degenerate and infectious and destructive and poisonous and defective. That's judgement. 
Sexual impurity of thought becomes impurity of body, which leads to degrading of bodies, which leads to broken relationships and broken lives. Greed and envy leads to violence and theft and lies and revenge. The judgement of God in this life is that people bear the consequences of their choices. When people say, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? This is, that's at least part of the answer. God is allowing them, he's handing them over to their choices. Following verse 29 we get a long tragic list of the sorts of things that people naturally do when they choose to worship other things instead of God. Filled with every kind of wickedness. Verse 32, even ignorance is no excuse. It's a brazen rejection of God. Although they know God's righteous decrees, they continue to do these very things and they even approve of those who practice them. People know what God wants but they choose the opposite anyway. But more than just choosing it, they're proud of it. Haven't you heard something like that recently? What a liberated society we have these days. Not like the old days. There are no restraints. It's a wonderful thing. We're accepting and tolerant. There's freedom of expression. Do what you like with whomever you like. Isn't it good how far we've moved from the prudish Victorian morality? The message of chapter 1 is that God's wrath against godlessness is seen in this life in his handing people over to the very wickedness they choose. As we read on into chapter 2, we see that it's wrath, but it's also wrath that has an an element of grace wrapped up in it. Because God's handing over actually does happen in this life while there's still the chance to repent. And so there's a sense in which God's handing over in this life is a warning. It's, it's It's not a permanent state. God allows people to see the extent of their choices in this life while there's there's, uh, time to stop and make a U-turn. And the logic is something like, wow, if if life is this bad now, how much worse will it be on the day of God's wrath? Well, that's wrath uh, as we see it now. As we move into chapter 2, Paul's mind turns to a group of people listening to his words and they think, None of this applies to them. Uh, At least on the surface, their lives didn't look anything like that list of godlessness and wickedness of chapter 1. I think he's thinking of the Jews, he's certainly thinking of the Jews, the second half of chapter 2, but I think he's thinking of the Jews here as well. The Jews had had God's law for centuries uh, and their lives, at least on the surface, looked quite different uh, from the, the, the Gentiles around them. And so they thought that meant they were safe. And perhaps you thought the same thing as you read through that list of sins in verse 29 of chapter 1. But there's a message for people like these Jews, these complacent people. Don't be too quick to assume you're safe. Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you pass, you judge the other, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. No defence to say, 
but I'm not as bad as he is. I may not be perfect, but I'm not like him. It's no defence to say, but I know all about right living. It's not enough to say, I've got ten of these on the shelf. Problem is, says Paul, you do the same things. The Jews thought the simple fact that they had the law meant they were safe. It was their security blanket. But Paul says that's not the way it works. Possession's not enough. And they thought that God's delay in sending judgment meant everything was okay. He hasn't judged us yet. He must be approving of us. But they got it the wrong way round. God's delay was about pardon and patience, not acceptance and approval. God's delay is about pardon and patience, not acceptance and approval. It was designed to lead them to change, to turn their life around. It's not designed to make them complacent. The law was meant to be a mirror that humbled them to repentance. It was not meant to be an admission ticket you presented on Judgment Day. They deserved punishment. They weren't keeping God's law. They had it but they weren't keeping it and yet God was holding off on that punishment so they would recognise their sin. You see what he says in verse 4? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. God is just. God demands that people recognise and honour him. He demands their allegiance. Rebels deserve judgement. One day that will happen. But at the moment, he's withholding his hand. He's delaying his judgement because he's patient. He's merciful. He's loving. So we need to make sure we keep hold of that side of God's character too as we're thinking about this topic of judgement. Too often people focus on punishment and wrath and dismiss God for that reason but forget that that God's actually holding back his hand. He's giving people as much time as possible because he longs to save them. He longs to win them back through the death of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.4 puts it like this, God our Saviour wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. 2 Peter 3.9 turns that around. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what God wants. He wants no one to perish. He wants everyone to repent. But for those who presume on God's character, who presume on his patience, who refuse to turn around, who who think his hand will never fall because it hasn't fallen yet, judgment is sure and certain. Verse 5 of Romans 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgement will be revealed. So it doesn't matter whether you're someone who's ignorant of God's law, someone who's exchanged the truth of God for idols. 
It doesn't matter if you're someone who knows God's law and, and thinks you're okay. So far, Paul's point is that everyone will be found guilty unless you repent and trust God's forgiveness through Jesus. From verse 5 through chapter 2, we find out what God's judgement will be like. First up, verse 5, it will be perfectly just. The day of God's wrath when his righteous judgement will be revealed. That's both scary and comforting, isn't it? There will be no mistakes. There will be no miscarriages of justice. Everything will be carried out according to truth and consistency. Secondly, it will be personal. Verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he's done. There's no corporate punishment. On the one hand, that means no one will be blamed for someone else's sin. And on the other hand, it means that no one will be able to sneak through behind somebody else and not be judged. On that day, it won't matter who you're related to, who you're connected to, whose family line you're standing at the end of, each person will stand on their own. Third, judgment will be according to what people have done. The fruit, of, the fruit of your life will be the criteria. The Jews won't be able to trust their heritage or their knowledge or their possession of the law. Notice the fruit that God will notice, verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Who receives eternal life? Those who persistently do good. Now, on the surface you might think, hang on a minute, Dave, isn't that the opposite of what we normally say about salvation? Uh, We normally say you're not saved by what you do, you're saved by God's grace, by trusting Jesus. Dave, haven't you forgot Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works. So are you saying I'm saved by works? Well, no. If we look a little closer, we see Paul saying exactly the same thing here in the, the book of Romans as well. At the very start of Romans, chapter 1, verse 5, uh, he says, Through Jesus and for his name's sake, We've received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that comes from faith. Do you see? Faith is the beginning. God's righteousness comes to everyone who believes. Chapter 1 verse 17. Faith is the beginning, but obedience is the fruit that comes from faith. Faith always grows fruit of obedience. When you have the faith that honours and serves Jesus, that will be seen in a desire to do the things that he wants. Not that you'll be perfect, but the general direction, the general trend of your life will be this commitment to do good, the obedience that comes from your faith. So, with that in mind, go back and look at verse chapter 2, verse 7 again. What is it that God will look for on Judgment Day? 
a persistence in doing good, in seeking glory, honour and immortality. I don't think that's describing moral perfection. It's, it's describing to me a fundamental, a consistent orientation that seeks to do good. Uh, it's an orientation that begins with faith. What is it that the people seek? They're seeking glory, honour and immortality. Well, what's that? Well, they're the characteristics of God himself, aren't they? Glory, honour, immortality. It's about seeking God. It's about seeking the things to do with God. Or as Jesus described it, it's seeking first the kingdom of God. That's what God's looking for on that day. People who seek first his kingdom. Compared to the opposite of that, verse 8, those who are self-seeking, reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. God's looking at two things, people who seek God or people who seek self. People who follow the glory of God or people who reject the truth and replace it with lies. And so the things that we will be judged according to on that day will be the fruit that grows from our faith or our lack of faith. The things that we do will be the evidence, the proof, the evidence that's presented on Judgment Day, the proof of our faith. It's our faith that saves us, our works will be evidence of our faith on that day. So that's the third thing we see about God's judgment. It'll be according to what people have done. Fourth thing we see, uh, chapter 2 verse 9, God's judgment will be complete. Uh, There'll be distress, trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Every human being will be called to account from every corner of the world, every culture, every age. Big countries can't escape, small ones won't be overlooked. Everyone will be judged. What's more, verse 5, that judgement will be impartial for God does not show favouritism. It'll be impartial. Unlike the way we decide things, we're always coloured by our perspectives. There will be no special deals, there will be no backdoor passes. Everyone is eligible, no one is guaranteed. Both Jew and Gentile are in the firing line. Verse 12 puts it like this, if you sin without having the law, you're guilty. If you sin having the law, you're guilty. There's no difference. There's no favouritism. It's not enough to just hear the law, verse 13. Hearing doesn't do anything. You actually have to do what you hear. And to prove his point, to really get the attention of the Jew, verse 14, he gives a shocking example. The Jews thought they were God's favourite and so they were complacent. But look at verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. He's talking about Christian Gentiles, Paul's target audience in his ministry. 
the ones he described back in chapter 1, verse 5, when he said, my message is, uh, my ministry is to all the Gentiles, uh, to the obedience that comes from faith. That's uh, who he's preaching to. So this group of Gentile Christians, they didn't grow up with the law, but when they heard the gospel, God wrote his law on their hearts. Just like he promised in Jeremiah 31. And then he gives them a new nature, just like he promised in Ezekiel 36. And then these Christian Gentiles, who never knew the law, they begin to do the things that the law requires. When they do that, when God makes them new people, they're a law to themselves. They don't need the law. They produce the fruit that will cause them to be innocent, vindicated on Judgment Day. Ironically, while the proud Jews actually failed to keep the law they'd known for generations. So that's all part of Paul's big fifth point, that God's judgement is impartial. It comes to both Jews and Gentiles. The sixth thing we see about God's judgement, verse 16, is it'll be thorough, it'll be detailed. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus. Secrets will be judged. There'll be nothing hidden. Every corner of your life will be examined. Uh, Revelation describes describes it as the books will be opened. The books of your life. The library. We might say the hard drive. The cloud will be downloaded of your life. Every secret, every thought. You can hide some things from some people some of the time but it will be all there for God to see. Every secret deed, every opportunity to do good that you ignored, those will be judged. That's a pretty daunting reality, isn't it? So we ask the question that we've asked each week in this series, so what? What do we do with that information about the future? Well, I think today the first answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? If judgment's coming, what's the so what? Do what you can to avoid it. Make sure you're on Jesus' side. Make sure that by persistence in doing good, you're seeking glory, honour and immortality. Jesus put it this way in John 3:16. You may have heard this verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. God is coming to judge. But he's also done everything to provide us a way out of that condemnation. Believe in his Son. Trust him with your life. Uh, Many of us uh, are doing that. Many of us are trusting Jesus. But perhaps you are a Christian and yet you still have this nagging doubt when it comes to Judgment Day. An uneasiness about whether your faith is enough or whether God is reliable enough. I want you to listen carefully to the logic of Romans 5, 9 and 10. Maybe flip over the page from where you are in Romans 2. 
Romans 5, 9 and 10 and it says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Can you see the the comparison? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If you're worried about judgement, remember the cross. If you've turned from your sin, if you've accepted God's offer of forgiveness in Jesus, then God has done the almost impossible to imagine thing. He's turned you from an enemy into a friend. That's what the cross did. That's the difficult thing. Now you're his friend and you're worried about the judgment seat. You're a friend. Saving you from judgment is easy. That's the simple thing. He's done the difficult thing. How much more will he save you on judgment day? If you're worried about the judgment seat, Remember the cross. That's the key. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you warn us. Uh, We thank you that you hand us over to our choices uh, as a warning. Uh, Thank you for Jesus. You provide us with a way out. Thank you that you want none to be lost but all to come uh, to repentance and life. Thank you for these promises that when we doubt uh, we are to fix our eyes on the cross and remember what huge things you've already done for us. Once again our thoughts turn to friends and family that we have uh, who are under threat of your judgement and we pray that you might have mercy on them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.